Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. And as always, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. He and his wife, Deborah, are Native storytellers, and they are probably, it is an art form that is kind of uh, not being recognized as, as much as it should be. So I would urge you to check out their website, listen to their DVDs, and be reminded of what antiquity, the kind of richness and magic that is. Now I want to talk about tonight's show because I'm very excited and honored. Um, I, for all of you who, who know me or know of me, you, you know that I have a fascination and a love of the, of the lore and, and the history and um, the mythology connected to giants of all sorts. So when I found Gary Wayne's book, The Genesis Six, of Cons- the, the Genesis Six Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind, I was hooked. And, and though it is a long book, it is a thorough book, it is well-documented, it is amazing, and it gives you another slant on the giants and what they mean to to us and and how they got us to where we are and what they plan to do with us as we move forward. I mean, not that there are, you know, 40 feet giants treading the earth now. However, their energy is here and their bloodline is here. This Genesis, Genesis 6 conspiracy book marches us towards the Great Tribulation when the loyalty of the terminal generation, that would be us, will be tested. The Bible, along with many other ancient sources, clearly records the existence of giants. Gary provides copious citations from many society insiders, along with the existence, the extensive Bible references, other religious references, and historical material to bolster his contention. What he uncovers will astonish you and it will change you to prepare for the fulfilling of God's promises. I I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed this book, how much I'm going to use it as a reference book, because 
I, I, I did read it in a week, and, and I really wanted to take much longer to go in and, and really absorb things. But it is an amazing guidebook as to how how we got to this point in time, what the purpose of it is, and what we have to look forward to in in many different ways. So, Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me and so happy to be here tonight and so much looking forward to the, the discussion. I think we're going to, uh, you know, reflect on some things for the audience that maybe they haven't really uh, heard before or thought about. So very much looking forward to the show tonight. Well, me too. And, you know, I giants are a favorite topic of mine, always have been. And, you know, their their existence has been, you know, we have... You know, we have been a, we we have seen giant bones, and the giant bones we have seen are really small to what what the original giants were. And it when you when I think of of giants, and I take a look at you know what the Bible has to say about them, and and you know you know frankly it's it's you know there were Bibles in those days, and people just kind of skim over that, and they don't think much of it. But the reality is that that the giants have been, are, were and are a real part of the evolution of the human species and where it can go and where it will go. So it's important for people to understand, first of all, where they came from and then, and then how, even though we don't have 40 feet men walking around today, the, the essence, the, um, the, the energy, the, the DNA of the giants are still within a great number of human, uh, probably all of humanity, to be honest with you. When you think of the thousands of years that, that we've gone through, it would seem to me that there isn't a person alive that doesn't, doesn't have a bit of giant DNA in them. Yeah, I don't know whether or not everybody has giant DNA or giant bloodlines to a certain degree, but certainly it would be very, very well dispersed, so... Um, but, you know, I, I always like to say when we get into the topic of bloodlines and or DNA or the gene of ISIS, as they like to call it, uh-huh. is that right out of the top, we should be saying that even if you do have those bloodlines or DNA, it has nothing to do with salvation uh, in terms of how I view things and, and, and my research, uh, you know, from reading the Bible. And uh-huh. it's all about, you know your faith in Jesus and uh, your faith in God and following them and choosing them. And, you know, except for violations against uh, the Holy Spirit, which seems to be related to the violations to the laws of creation that the book of Enoch talks about with the creation of the Nephilim and the mark of the beast, which seems to be a related sort of violation, you know, all sins are forgiven. So, and even if you were to uh-huh. use Old Testament law, if the sins of the father don't carry on past the third or fourth generation. So I think it's all about, yeah, that DNA is likely out there in significant amounts. And certainly the bloodlines would be out there in very much diluted amounts. And when you learn about how dispersed the giants were across the world, um, even after the flood, then you'd under, you would you'd pretty much have to come to a conclusion there's a significant amount of the, the DNA and bloodlines that has to be out there. Well, let's let's you know go back to the beginning, and and you know how how were the 
how did the first giants come about to be? Yeah, and it's explained fairly quickly in a rather odd location in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, for people who uh, want to get out their Bible or check on it a little bit later. And it's about the sons of God who go to the daughters of men and copulate with them and take any number that they choose. And the offspring are what are called giants in the King James Version Bible and in other translations it would be Nephilim. And giants go back to the word Nephal, which you put I am on to get the Nephilim, which is the male plural. They were known as a tribe of giants and tyrants and bullies and and kings, as you take that back into Hebrew. And uh, the the word uh, Nephal is uh, rooted back into another word that means fallen ones. So it's all sort of related to the these sons of God. And then the next question is, is who are the sons of God? And the sons of God are, I think, in an Old Testament um, understanding, would be the sons of God that are talked about in uh, many aspects of the Old Testament, but the most clearly in the book of Job, in, uh, when it talks about the sons of God three times, and they're presenting themselves uh, before God. And uh, in other translations, there'll be angels, but this is the Ben-Ha Elohim. And I've got a uh, document I can send people if they're interested and they want to get a hold of me after the show through my website or through Facebook or Twitter. And uh, it explains why the sons of God are angels so that we understand Uh who the parents are. And I also have one that says why the sons of God are not the Sethites or the sons of God in the New Testament. Um, and I also have one on the creation of demons. So it's all biblically based, and I walk through it verse by verse by verse. But I won't go into that now because that's, that's <laughs> like a show in itself. But yeah. these were, I mean, humans procreating with humans don't create giants. And giants aren't exaggerated there because you have to go back to the original Hebrew to understand what that word giant means. And these were demigods. And in some translations, they're called the heroes of old. And heroes is the same term that's used in Greek mythology for the giants created by the gods and human females that they call demigods. And the definition of a demigod in the ancient understanding is the offspring of gods and human females, as in Poseidon and Atlas, or Zeus and producing Hercules, and so on and so forth. Okay, so so the very first giants um, were not those were not fathered by those that have been cast out of heaven. They were just guys on vacation, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I, <I'm, laughs> uh, that's well, you know, a very, very good question. Because so, so it, it I, I understand. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, because it doesn't say, it just says the sons of God, right? It doesn't say... Were they fallen angels or rebellious, rebellious, rebellious angels or were they, you know, the ones outside of heaven? And so we don't, you know, quite, quite get told who they are. But what we do know is, is by Genesis 6, we know the angelic rebellion has already happened. And what we do know okay. is, is that we have uh, this creation that God looks on poorly upon because what's happening is is the immortal spirit of heaven is being passed on into the physical world 
and into physical bodies and creating physical gods in the physical world. And the violation is is that the spirit of heaven isn't supposed to mix with with uh, physical bodies in the physical world. And so you're creating these demigods. And this is like a counterfeit spirit, as the first book of Enoch likes to talk about. That is a violation against the laws of creation. So God, in verse 6-3, he limits life to 120 years. And mm-hmm. I've got a handout and document on that for people who go into detail on that. And a lot of people think that's the Noah commission, except that, uh, you know, from the time Noah is introduced, he's, he's introduced in, at the end of chapter 5, and then it begins right after 6-4 with the account of Noah. And there's a hundred years that takes place in this segment, which isn't the 120 years. And I don't believe the Bible uh, makes mathematical errors. So the numbers don't add up, but God steps in so that his spirit won't contend with these beings. And of course it's located right in the middle of the creation of these beings, which is the preamble for the flood story. And one of the reasons for the flood, because of what they do, which is why it's located there in terms of the narrative and so God's going to make sure that ongoing these beings, these giants, these super demigods aren't going to live forever in the physical world and their bodies are going to die out and their spirits are not going to be permitted to sleep and they're not going to be permitted into heaven and they're going to be, you know, become known as demons and uh, that are wandering the earth and thirsting for a body. So cosmically speaking, there was a non-intervention contract, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, whatever the laws are in terms of what the angels were permitted to do, even after the rebellion or not, this crosses the line. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that, the result that, is, yeah. is that these are the angels that are sentenced to the abyss that we see in Revelation 9 that are going to have an impact on the end time. Right. Okay. So 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 then God says he's 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 not happy and he's going to wipe them out with a flood. But but what what is confusing I think for for a lot of people is that is this before Adam and Eve or is this after Adam and Eve? This is after Adam and Eve. Um in terms of how I view the Bible, I look at it as a linear story and Adam and Eve take place in chapter two and chapter three and then we get the genealogies and everything going forward after that and this is in the sixth generation as it's talked about in the first book of enoch or in the days of noah as it's talked about in in genesis so and of course uh, noah is is born just before the flood actually let's say 600 years before the flood because he lives for 950 years 350 after the flood and 600 before so in sometime in the last five to six hundred years the giants are created now was noah a giant well he certainly wasn't we know what his lineage is he comes out of uh his father uh being lamech and uh-huh. uh, lamech of the seth line not lamech of the okay. uh, canaanite line and there's two of them uh, mm-hmm. which is very important when, uh, when reading um, the Genesis account. And so he is recorded in the Book of Enoch as a shining being like the angels, uh, is, as what they would have looked as a baby, but we're also reassured in that book that 
he is born for a special purpose. And so, and he is the son uh, of Lamech. So he's not an angel, although, and again, Enoch is not scripture. So we can use it for context, but we, we, you know, we need to understand that it's not scripture. So, um, but I think it's pretty clear in this case that uh, he's not uh, the offspring of the angels, although his birth, according to Enoch, uh, certainly resembles that. And he is to be, you know, sort of pure of stock. And he's the one that's going to be chosen to warn the antediluvian world and then start the post-diluvian world anew with uncorrupted humans. Okay. And when we talk about what's going on in the antediluvian world, we understand that the world is becoming corrupted. And we hear about violence, but we're not told about all of the corruption. And I think that's part of where the Nephilim story comes in, because when we take the word corrupt back to Hebrew, it's the word chakath, and it means more than just sort of violence. It's like, you know, corrupting, uh, spoiling, decaying, destroying. And when we read into the language of the narrative that the whole earth had become corrupt, to me that's suggesting that Human DNA had become corrupted, animal DNA had become corrupted, plant genomes had become corrupted. And perhaps that's why God actually calls all of the animals to the ark, because he knows the representatives of the species that are not corrupted, just as Noah's family is not corrupted. Mm-hmm. So, so but, but there are... But but all of the giants are not killed. That's you know the, the point was to take the giants out of the out of yeah. the mix, and somebody cheated. <laughs> I mean, somebody. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there are there are well, stories that that you know Noah fed one of the giants. Uh, you know, that you know, hung onto the side of the ark. That I mean, there were. I, I know the story is that the whole world was surrounded by water and everything was drowned, and yet there were people that survived. So Yeah, we don't know we don't know exactly how from a smoking gun verse how the giants show up after the flood. We only know that they do. And mm-hmm. we know that God is also Alpha Omega, so he knows the beginning from the end. And so nothing is a surprise and all of these are things that are playing out. And I think it's permitted right from the beginning in terms of the relationship of the angelic rebellion and the relationship as to why Adam is being created to create a set of beings that's going to choose God, who doesn't have immortality, but will be given immortality in the future world and actually be raised above angels to the degree of even judging some of them. So what we have going on here is, is, free choice, I think, being played out, and God is greater than free choice. So all of these things that the angelic rebellion is going to do, God has already foreseen, but he's letting it happen to test humans in that free choice contest, so to speak. And I don't think the angelic, uh, the fallen angelic angels um, actually anticipated the resurrection. And I think um, that's why Jesus, while still in the grave, and First Peter goes to speak with them uh, in the abyss, and I think he's telling them that, you know, your rebellion is officially over, and when I rise on the Sunday, your fate is sealed to the, to the lake of fire. So uh-huh. we don't know exactly 
uh, other than if uh, it's a sifting and a testing of the human beings to choose against great odds and not the knowledge and the intimate knowledge that angels would have had, but they were created immortal first and only had a choice to follow or not, and obviously some did not choose to follow and rebel. So mm-hmm. now we get back to the point that you're raising is, is, okay, so why weren't they all wiped out? Well, God obviously permits it. And also in Genesis uh, 6, 1 through 4, in that short little narrative, he tells us that there will be uh, the sons of God go to the human females and produce these Nephilim and afterwards as well. So what we don't know is, is again, does that mean that there was more recreations uh, of, of these Nephilim creatures than just the Mount Hermon or the one uh, time creation before the flood or does that mean is it referring to after the flood because again when we get into what that word actually means after it's a car which means you know again once more afterwards and then when it's combined with um, um, the rest of the narrative we get kind of an understanding that this is going to happen again and seems to be after the flood. But again, it's not a smoking gun um, verse. But again, I have a, a document for people if they want to get a hold of me for it, for the case for second incursion, either at Mount Hermon again or at Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'll walk through why I think, why my opinion is that second incursion is the best biblical recollection and and matching up of what the bible says as to how they show up after the flood but you know when we get into other accounts they have survival stories as you were mentioning does this mean that the, the that there is another angelic rebellion because the other guys are you know down below so so in order for them to you know the sons of god to come into the daughters of man is this a fresh batch of deserters from heaven i don't think it's a fresh batch and i don't think all of the angels uh who rebelled physically copulated or violated the laws of creation um before the flood and only the impassioned ones and maybe the most evil of them go into the abyss but if there's a, a, a recreation after the flood then those would go to the abyss as well now, Satan's uh-huh. not in the abyss, so one presumes he didn't participate in this because he's not in the abyss. But even so, even if there was ones after the abyss, after the flood, who uh, did the same sort of crimes and went to the abyss, there are still rebellious angels that are still out there. Okay. okay? And when we move forward to, let's say, Revelations, Revelation 12 tells us that at least at that time, and there may be more that will rebel, you know, as time unfolded and right up to the end time, a third of the angels are going to be thrown out in the end time with about three and a half years left. And we also are told in Revelation that there was a hundred million angels created 10,000 times 10,000. So one can imagine if it's the number may even be greater than that, because that could be an allegory because in other places we're told they're uncountable. Um, There's at least 33 million that will ultimately rebel. So there's a lot of rebellious angels we're talking about. Wow. Now also mentioned throughout everything are the watchers and 
I, I am having trouble, you know, putting the watchers in any particular category. Were they a different level of the angelic realm? Were they um, a, another group that was just here to sort of supervise and take notes? I mean, who were the watchers? I think the watchers were uh, the seraphim angels. Um, and in, okay. in the Bible, we don't get watchers talked about much. In fact, from my research, I only show that they show up in uh, Daniel 4, where the term watcher in the King James Version is used three times. And the mm-hmm. watchers are known as the holy ones from heaven. And the holy ones who do the decrees uh, for God and particularly in the area of God ruling in heaven and that he establishes who rules on the earth. And this is all about the story that's mixed in with Nebuchadnezzar and him being punished for seven years and being announced by a watcher. So they seem to have a lot to do with the governance of the earth, and they also seem to be have a very high-level position of being... Um, called holy ones and they're also known as as guardian angels as you take that back to the hebrew but um, these were seemingly a special order of angels and the ones that fit the holy ones from heaven that would have such a high level of responsibility seems to fit the seraphim that come out of isaiah 6 and these are the ones who are before the altar in the burning stones acting as ministers because they actually take a coal out of that burning altar and put it to Isaiah's lips to take away his sins. So they seem to be almost ministers before God. And if you take seraph, which is the Hebrew word, and the I am is the male plural, back to the Hebrew, the meaning is fiery serpent angels. Mm-hmm. And so I think these are the ones that they're talking about as the sons of God in um, Genesis 6. Watchers come up in the book of Enoch as being the ones who went to Mount Hermon and mated with human females as a sort of a parallel story to what it talks about in Genesis. So sort of connecting to all of those dots, it's a very high level ranking of angel that are the serpent like looking angels that would be like a heavenly dragon because the serpent understanding in antiquity was the same as a dragon uh, as as being the same same being, and this would be a flying dragon or a heavenly dragon, as opposed to one in the physical world that would be um, similar, but not obviously a, a, an angel. So I think these are the the seraphim angels who were the governors, as they're talked about in Enoch, that governed the cult centers or the different civilizations uh, before the flood, and these are the same ones who created the Nephilim, and it makes sense from, again, when you look at, let's say, account, um, accounts from Greek mythology, stick with that one, uh, you have Poseidon, who is the god who had responsibility and started the civilization of Atlantis, and he mates with um, Clyto or Clymene, uh, and Poseidon is also called Iapetus and other versions, so there's a few different names for the same human female and the same God. And they produces um, at the beginning, 10 giant Kings who are going to oversee the Atlantean empire uh, of, of Poseidon. And of course, Poseidon also will have other offspring as well, like 
uh, two that sort of names that bring that show up in the Bible are Gog and Magog. And for people who are from England, Albion would also be the offspring of Poseidon as another as another giant. So, yeah, and I, I think, think I, when we I put think... all of the details. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the things too, when when we're talking giants, um, I, I think it's important for people to understand we're not talking, you know, seven and nine foot people. We're talking anywhere from from twenty to thirty to forty feet high. These are yeah, giants. certainly the original ones. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we we don't get unfortunately what we don't get in in the Old Testament is is a height. Um, description before the flood, uh, but what we do get is an understanding, you know, from Amos. Although he's referring to uh, the Amorites, who are a hybrid of the Rephaim, um, but they're described as being like the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon grew from 36 to 50 feet. And there were the giant trees that were used for the building of all the ancient structures of the ancient world. Um, so most people believe that, uh, although that's a simile, that's sort of a reflection that these were monstrous beings and, and most of the consensus is 20 to 40 feet. Although we get a, we do get a measurement in the book of Enoch. We're just not sure which one, uh, what the actual dimension is because it has 300 L's or 300 cubit, depending on whether you're reading the Yes version or the uh, Aramaic version. If it's cubits, then they'd be like 450 feet tall. But again, we have to be very careful when we're dealing with uh, books outside the Bible. And we don't know actually what the dimension of an L was, which is, I believe, in the Giaz version and considered to be the most complete version. Uh, and we don't have uh, a book of Enoch that comes um, complete from ancient Hebrew. So it's hard to, to, to verify that. But we do well, get giants after I, the flood, 2,000 years after. Go ahead. No, I was going to say in the book. I forget, I don't know where it is, but it, it is described. Um, is it Og's bed? One yeah, we get two lengths. Yeah, we get two dimensions of giants in 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 the Bible. I was going to. I'll mention. We'll go to Og first. So, his 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 um, bed is is described as being um, in in cubits, and there are two lengths cubits in the ancient world there's a common cubit which is about 18 inches and uh, then you have uh, the royal cubit which is about 21 inches some measurements are slightly under 21 but right around the 21 inches so that's going to put odds bad at depending on which dimension that you're going to use there you know anywhere from about uh, 13.9 feet long to 15 to 16 feet and six feet wide. And it's also made of iron because wood would not support his weight. So that would mean if he's sleeping in a bed that size, he's going to be somewhere between 12 to 14 feet tall. Now we do get an accurate accounting of one giant in the time of David with uh, Goliath and he's six cubits and a span. So again, using the, two uh, size of cubits that I was talking about and a, and a span is um, I believe uh, is, is about nine inches 
Um, and so you're going to get a height of Goliath that's going to be nine feet nine to somewhere between 11 and uh, 11 foot three inches. And so that's the, the biggest that we get in terms of these giants. But this is 2,000 years after the original creation before the flood. So we have no idea how much larger these original ones actually were. Well, when when the Israelites came into the Promised Land and, and they came into where the Canaanites were, weren't they? Didn't they report back that that they were as grasshoppers to the to the to the people who were the Canaanites? Yeah, you're talking about yeah, Numbers 13. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, but we have to be careful with that verse. So I think it's, it's a description that just shows how much larger that they are mm-hmm. uh, compared to what the average human was, which most people say were, you know, five feet tall. So if you've got beings that are over 10 feet or, you know, 12 feet tall as uh, Og was likely or taller, then they would look quite small beside them by comparative. And, but the thing is, we have to be careful. That comes in the evil reports. So that could be a bit of an, an exaggeration. It's not that they're not saying that giants existed, because that's not the case. And Deuteronomy uh, 1 uh, absolutely confirms the story that the, the Anakim were there that they're talking about. And then you have the, the recording of the Anakim before um, the evil report. So people kind of get those things a little bit mixed up. But the description is very, very important. Uh, they were these fearsome beings, and they felt small, whatever that smallness was in comparison. Mm-hmm. Well, now let's go back to after the flood. You know, the the ark lands, the water goes down, and and they come out and uh, the the um, to start another world, supposedly. And it 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 was amazing to me that that suddenly these what two, four, six people were supposed to now populate the world? That's the story from the biblical perspective for the descendants of, of Noah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in other in, in other accounts, you have ark stories all over the place, or people climbing to the tops of mountains. They all have a flood story, uh, and they record the survival of humans all around the world and. They also record the survival of giants around the world. So there's different flood stories that are out there. But the biblical account is is saying that there was, you know, um, these were the only descendants of Noah that survived, and we're kind of led to believe that nobody else was there but them. Yeah. Well, you know, there there were... Humanoids here before before Adam and Eve. You know there were um, there was a species here. I guess is the best way to put it here before Adam and Eve. And then when they were cast out, um, uh, didn't one of their the uh, Cain? Yeah, Cain didn't Cain um, marry somebody from a nearby village or something? And so that you you now have his yeah. bloodline and. Well, yeah, I mean, Cain is ostracized for killing Abel, and he goes to a land yeah. called Nod, and the first thing he does is marry somebody, and he starts to build a city. And the question gets to be, is for who? And, and where did the <laughs> yeah. wife come from? 
and because uh, we don't hear of any more people being produced until you know 130 years where there's Seth is born to you know mm-hmm. going to start the Sethian line, and then afterwards more sons and daughters are born. So one presumes that Cain is long gone when Seth is born. So who did he find? And so when I look at the Genesis, and again, I don't believe the Bible is in contradiction. So, but what I can't do is reconcile days four through six with the Eden account. There's just so many differences there that um, to me, they're talking about two different creations. And it's the only way that you can reconcile it. And I think Adam is created sometime afterwards um, um, than the people of day six. And, you know, one of the most simplest differences, and there's a lot of differences, believe me, from the creation order to some of the language and some of the questions that are asked. Um, But the, the biggest, most simple thing I can point to is, is that Adam is created in singular and then moved to the Garden of Eden, and then sometime later, because an appropriate partner couldn't be found, then they're going, God's going to create uh, Eve from Adam's rib. And so the question gets to be is, is what do you mean an adequate partner, right? <laughs> if there's nobody <laughs> else around. What are, here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, what are we talking about? So, um, and, and I don't like going down the avenue of Lilith because I think that comes back in Babylon and that's a Sumerian tradition, but um, an interesting story and a show in itself. But uh, the people in day six are created in plural, uh-huh. male and female, and seemingly in great numbers and told to spread out around the world and, and to multiply. And they seem to be more like hunters and gatherers as opposed to the clearly agrarian society um, that uh, Adam and Eve are starting to create within Eden and and take with them after um, their fall out of Eden. So, again, way too many stories. I have, you know, again, a couple documents that I walk everybody through what those differences are. And to me, that's where Cain's wife comes from, is the people from day six. And I think that's who the daughters of men are that are talked about in Genesis 6 that the sons of God go to because it's the same language that's used in in day 6. I think it's the same people. Okay. It just, you know, it, it is it it is slightly confusing and, until you say, okay, there were people here, but then God decided to create somebody special. And that's where Adam came from and, and eventually Eve. Sure. Well, it makes sense so, if you understand, if you, if you look at the idea that the Watchers were in rebellion at, at this time and they're governing the antediluvian world and they're corrupting all of the people and having them follow them and worship them and they're providing knowledge to the people. And so God creates Adam to resolve the angelic rebellion and creates them for a special commission and breathes his own breath into Adam for this commission. And then they messed up. Um, but, but, you know, God being God <laughs> would know that they were going to mess up. Um, yes. It just, you know, you kind of, it, it's, it's watching uh, something unfold 
that you kind of know what's going to happen next, but you're not sure quite how it's going to happen next. Yeah. And, yeah. And well, so, so we've got really two bloodlines that, that you follow through time. You want mm-hmm. the Rex, the Rex do and the other? Yeah. Because I think it's, it's important for people to understand that there are two philosophies that have come through time that have been preserved and protected and 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 built upon. It's almost like this is this is um, there are two what two two philosophies and and yes. they're both battling for dominance and it started yeah, two philosophies. Back Yes, yeah, it started back thousands and thousands of years ago, but we are seeing it coming together at this particular point in time. You know, whether yeah. it'll totally and come together, you know, in my lifetime or years, so, we don't know, but it's it's you can see it coming together. Yes, and so you use the uh, the the term that I use in the book Rex Deus or Rex Deus, depending on how you want to pronounce mm-hmm. that, and that means kings of God. And this is the the bloodline of the Nephilim, and it's the the understanding of what the spurious forces believe, and they've kept documents and genealogies all the way through, and it's the sort of the bloodlines of the Nephilim, and they usurped the kingships in the antediluvian world, and they did again mm-hmm. after the flood, and so. What developed alongside these ancient warriors and these ancient kings and these dynastic bloodlines that they created is that at that same time, they're partnering up, obviously, with their procreators, these rebellious angels. And they are also partnering with the descendants of Cain and the people of day six. And out of the knowledge that Cain has received from Adam, according to the secret society and Gnostic records, is that he learns what he calls the knowledge of God in heaven, which Adam would have been taught a bunch of knowledge in terms of uh, setting up a civilization and agrarian. And he passes this knowledge along to Enoch, his son. Um, and there's two Enochs in Genesis. So again, we need to keep those straight. One is the son of Cain and one is the son of Jared. And so um, Enoch, son of Cain, is, is um, third generation, Adam, Cain, and then Enoch. And he dispenses this knowledge into disciplines that they call the seven sacred sciences, and it's the development of the ancient knowledge into what we would know today as the seven liberal arts. And then this knowledge in and around the sixth generation when the giants are created is going to be added to and accelerated in a way that we're only starting to see today from the gods or the fallen angels that allowed this partnership to form with this uh, mystical religion that comes out of this knowledge, which is known as the sun cult and the bull cult, along with the secret societies, because the secret societies take their start back to this period of time as well to the patriarch of Enoch and Cain and of course Nama, Tubal, Cain, Jubel and Jubel um, of of the Cain, Cainite line are some of the greatest patriarchs and so this is the organizational structure that parades the world into war and violence and a war against humankind and trying to destroy humankind or totally have them rebel against 
God so that the Adamite commission that we talked about that they were created for is not going to be fulfilled. Uh And it gets so bad that God steps in and creates the flood, keeps Noah and his pure pure line that's uncorrupted as a descendant of Adam for a second chance after the flood. And and the other bloodline is that of Seth? Um, so you have, yeah, the Seth uh, and the Noah line is, is the one that would come down as being the Israelite bloodline through uh, Shem after, after the flood. Uh, and then uh-huh. you have... Uh, Two schools of thought that, uh, from the polytheist perspectives, and these are their beliefs, and I would point out for the audience that it's important to understand what they believe. It doesn't matter whether we totally believe it or not, but it matters as to what they believe and what they're doing with that information, which is the key. And so they believe that you have a Canaanite bloodline that intermarries with uh, the Nephilim bloodline, and this crosses the flood as well. Um, and they have several different ways of that happening. But this is that other uh, bloodline and religion and philosophy that is always at war with humankind. And if you look at Genesis 3.15, this is the, the seed of the serpent. Or in Isaiah 14.29, it's another interesting verse to look at. It's the, the serpent root that uh, is part of that prophecy of Isaiah 13 and 14. And it's important to understand the serpent root, just as we talked about the seraphim angels as being the fiery serpents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, the dragons of the uh, of the heavenly world. And just as the gods of the ancient world, for the most part, are mostly serpent dragons. So whether or not it's the plume serpent or the feathered serpent with the Kishamaya or the, the Naga gods in India or the dragon creator gods in China, wherever you go around, serpent uh, imagery of the gods and the early kings with the same type of serpent imagery, which were their offspring and their representatives on earth, also having faces of serpents. And so the early look, the whole, this antediluvian world, and then shortly again after the flood, was just absolutely immersed in serpent uh, imagery. And this is the bloodlines and the the belief system that's going to cross the flood and be reestablished after the flood, establish all of the early post-diluvian kingdoms and dynasties that have rippled down to the nobility class and the ruling class, even to this day. Yeah, I, you know, when you when you trace it down, you know, you're, you're including, you know, secret societies and the Freemasons and the Templars and the Rosicrucians. I mean, these are these are things that everybody has, you know, in one way or another, either rubbed up against, been fascinated with, and or studied. And and I, I think the what what's fascinating is that that while they appear to be focused on helping humanity their ultimate goal is to control humanity which is it's a little frightening it is frightening and they've been quite successful ever since (laughs) the flood and they've been preparing for a showdown with god in the end time ever since well and you you kind of it's it's 
what was God thinking? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I know you can't get in God's head, but but it, it seems so counterproductive to to create something like this full of love and then allow it to be corrupted. It it just it boggles yes, my mind. And, and I think and I think it's that sifting and that free choice that you know we talked about earlier that um, he had created angels who worked around him and knew him intimately, but they were created immortal without choosing God first. And so they uh-huh. have their immortality, and some many rebelled. And so this is being permitted to play out to create the full number of the humans that he wants to raise to immortality in the future time and above angels, but it has to play out through free choice. We have to make our choice with little knowledge and mostly faith and to choose God and Jesus and follow them without the intimate knowledge to gain our immortality. And so it's, it plays out for a long time with a lot of tribulation and, and issues, but it's the sifting process so that the people who will be loyal as opposed to beings that were created immortal already, and obviously all of them were not loyal. Yeah, it just, um, when, when you see how it comes through time, and, and I think something that is confusing to me only because, you know, somebody is, 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 has one name to a certain point in time, and then they change their name. And it's like, what was your matter with your first name? You know, why did you do this? And, and in some place also you, um, you equate uh, uh, Akhenaten with Moses, which makes a great deal of sense to me, but um, why has history gotten it so wrong? Yeah, and it's not me who's equating in my book with uh, Moses with Akhenaten. That's, I'm letting the polytheists overlay their story. Uh, in oh, terms okay. of the telling in the last part of the book, so and their thought is, and they they create they've got a you know a, a lot of circumstantial evidence to to make their case, um, but the reason why we need to understand this is is because in the end time they're going to the polytheists are going to try and destroy monotheism, and one of the ways you can do that is is saying Moses is a polytheist, and. Mm. Um, Akhenaten is also one of the important kingships of the dragon kingships of the serpent kingships. And he actually has, if you know, people should Google Akhenaten and have a look at that face. I mean, it's a serpentine face with that protruding oh, yeah. chin, high cheekbones, elongated skull, large eyes that are wrapped around that would have glowed if he, you know, if he was in the original uh, antediluvian Nephilim that would have lit up a room. And that's over mm-hmm. 2000 years after the first creation of the first Nephilim before the flood. So um, he still has, after all that time, those, those, that serpentine look that I was referring to, just like the Egyptian uh, iconology is filled with cobras and snakes and things, so, and crocodiles, mm-hmm. like, all part of the same imagery. And so Akhenaten um, is said to be the one uh, who is Moses in their belief system who brings polytheism that he learned or both of them learned as being one at Heliopolis. Uh, and again, we know Moses would have been educated from the Bible at Heliopolis, but he converts. 
But what mm-hmm. the polytheists are, are saying is, is that at some point in time after the Israelites went to Israel and took the promised land, this monotheist virus, as they would look at it, and that is kind of what they like to call it, in, infected the Israelite Egyptian religion and went rogue to establish the pedigree of the Israeli kingship. So at some point in time, or leadership, so sometime towards the end of the judges um, is, is how they say this happens, and it turns into a monotheist society. And of course, now you have Moses, who is the parent sort of intersection for Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, because they all take their history back. And so if they can prove that or make the case in the end time as a deception that the actual original religion of Moses was polytheist, as what the Gnostics believe, because they're essentially are part of the Egyptian religion and a cosmology of other religions, um, mm-hmm. then monotheism is a fake religion. And they'll bring ah. us back under the umbrella of the Babel religion in the end time because they need to set up this universal religion. So look for that play to happen in the end time. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff I mean, I, going on. And, and what what impressed me so much with your book is, I mean, you've really got the genealogies down better than anybody that I've ever seen. I mean, it 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 is mind-boggling <laughs> but so you've got all of these you've got these two bloodlines and you've traced them into you know uh, families families of power and and you that, that they are coming to a point in time where they're they will manipulate a war to happen but I'm wondering, do these individuals recognize what it is that is driving them, or is it, 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 it is not just happenstance? This has clearly been orchestrated over thousands of years. And these yeah. bloodlines, you know, it, it, it's amazing. And it, to me, it's, it seems that bloodlines are intentionally being followed and calculated and recorded to be able to prove which direction – people come from yeah and i think they they want to in the end time to only make room for mostly people who carry the bloodline or the gene of isis or the spark of divine whatever you would like to call it and they call it all of that and i think it's very similar to what is attributed to the rosicrucians with the georgia guidestones where they would like only about 500 million people going forward in the new age, which would be these descendants that we're talking about for the most part, and where humans would only be there for sacrifice, blood rituals, and or servitude. So I think we can sort of look at that in terms of how they would view humans as being inferior and mundane, and the world that they're trying to bring about is not really to include the mundane, which is us. Uh, and they consider us as cattle for slaughter. Okay, and but wait a minute. If, now now you're, say, you're saying they ahead. consider, but you're talking about humans. You're talking, you know, they may have a bloodline, but they are at this point in time 
as human or as you or I. So how can they look at one human and say you you've got to go in another and saying you you can stay? I mean, at this point in time, because here's why. I mean, is there so, a switch that's going to get thrown or something? No, no, no. Here's how they look at it: is is that okay. to have the spark of the divine, you have to have the bloodline and the the DNA to be in that group. And only the spark of the divine, which is the spark of the Nephilim uh, through the fallen angels, which is the divine spark that they're talking about, only that can come together with a universal religion and a world government so that they can have this harmonic convergence so that they can recreate their immortality in the physical world. It's all part of their, their belief system. So... They don't believe humans have that spark. Only the people who have those physical uh, genealogies, bloodlines, and DNA, which is you know, essentially all, 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 all the same thing. And uh-huh. so they believe that that bloodline and DNA and spark of the divine makes them superior as divine representatives on this earth. And that's the world that they, that they want to... Um, have dominate and populate this earth and to stand up and fight for this this world against God in the end time. And so when we look at how they've kept their pedigree over time, they have continually intermarried to keep that pedigree as pure as possible. So that when you look at the early dynasties and the nobility, they would only intermarry with themselves. And they would send <laughs> yeah. wives from outside dynasties all the way through. And we roll that for the World War One as a quick example that you have the Romanovs in Russia and you have the Habsburgs in Austria and the Kaisers in uh, Germany and the Windsors in um, England. This was a family civil war because they were all cousins. They all intermarried. The problem with the intermarriage, though, as you continue to intermarry to keep your bloodlines pure, you get diseases like hemophiliac disease or the classic one to take it back to a a royal disease would be Habsburg's jaw. You get defects. So they would have to continue to have lesser pure bloodlines that would come from the outside of the nobility class that had intermarried with more humans to be marrying in to keep that bloodline sort of as free of disease as possible but within their culture, within their cult, it's the degree of pureness of pedigree that you can prove both through genealogies and or testing, I suppose, however they do that, which gives you your position in the hierarchy. And so when we take that now back to the Rosicrucians, as part of the secret societies, they're controlled by the bloodlines because the upper half of the Rosicrucians, the top 50%, are pure bloods, and the lower level is uh, has lower pedigree of pure bloods and or just very very talented people or rich people or new money who are trying to ennoble their bloodlines that they have put their blessing on to be taken up to that level in the secret societies because the Rosicrucians are the intersection between that bloodline ruling class 
and all the other secret societies. So you have the Illuminati that reports into them, Freemasonry's below the Illuminati, the Club of Rome would report directly into uh, the Rosicrucians, but they're the intersection of all of these different societies. And to understand the conspiracy and to understand the players and to understand what's going on, you need to understand the relationship of this partnership between the bloodlines, the religion, and the secret societies. Well, you know, it, it, so in, in other words, as we, as we move towards a one-world government, theoretically, and then a one-religion, basically what is happening is that, that, that humanity, those who control it, are really working at a place where they can go to war against God or create... Or, or look at him as an egregore and stop people from worshiping him, therefore he will cease to exist. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea and in terms of how they're going to also destroy humankind is to lead humans away from God. Uh-huh. doesn't matter which direction away, just away from God. And uh, so, I mean, that's how they use the seven sciences and the knowledge in the ancient world and knowledge is neither good or or evil. It's how it's used. Right. Um, But they use that knowledge to lead people away from God, not to honor God for anything, not to give them credit for anything and to build monuments to their pantheon of gods that they represented or that they worshiped. I'm sorry. And they do the same thing today. In the end times, you know, I mean, I, I understand what's supposed to happen at end times, but theoretically, they don't need humanity. They just need us physically to do something as opposed to spiritually be aware of something. Yes, exactly. If we're blind to God, then, you know, we're neither hot nor cold, right? We, mm-hmm. um, you know, Romans, Romans will leave um, a little bit of opening for people, but if you have heard and know of Jesus and have rejected him, you're not going to you're not going to be saved, that's for sure. And that's the whole goal. And so in the end time, part of what they're going to do as part of the deceptions as well is that they need to de deify Jesus. Now there are, you know, the the more we get into the sciences and the stuff like that, the more they are finding evidence of lots of different things. And, you know, there is they are trying, I, I know they're trying to prove that Jesus was, you know, just just human and not human and divine at the same time. And so are they, are they using science to try to take away his divinity and enhance his humanity? Yes, that and the ancient records and, and genealogies that they will produce as they get closer to the end time. So it's their belief, as as you've mentioned, and also, I mean, the the religion of the secret societies are the Gnostics, which has become Uh theosophy, which has become New Age, and it's all the same religion that comes out of the Gnostic (laughs) religion. And they're also the the same groups that were writing about a, a different kind of Jesus at the time of Jesus that would have him as a mortal prophet. They will recognize him as a prophet, but not uh-huh. as the word from God or the son of God. And so their story and what they say they have proof of 
um, and we'll see. It'll probably be, from, you know, from my Christian perspective, it's going to be false proof or fake proof. And in, in the age of Trump, everything is fake news. Um, they're going to come out. <laughs> they're going to come out and say that we have the proof that Jesus did not die on the cross. Uh-huh. And what they're they're going to say is is you know even Pilate was surprised that. He had died so soon, and Joseph of Arimathea takes him off the cross before he physically died, and they raise him back to health, and marries uh, Mary Magdalene, and they produce children, and the one that's of the main focus here with this offspring would be a child that they called Josephes, uh, and he's the one who carries on the Mary Magdalene and Jesus' bloodline that is going to intermarry with the Nephilim bloodlines starting with the Camelot kings and the Celtic kingships and the Pendragons of, of Wales. Uh, and Glastonbury, you know, is where Joseph of, of Arimathea is, is said to have taken Josephes. And uh-huh. it's intermarried into this uh, bloodline kingship. And then it crosses over to the Merovingian bloodline through Aragon, who's a daughter offspring of this, who's going to marry Aminabad, um, and that is already part of, uh, Aminabab is already king in the uh, Merovingian, Merovingian dynasty at this point. And so this bloodline is scioned or graf- grafted into those Nephilim bloodlines that they um, already were very rich in. And it creates this bloodline that could not be ennobled anywhere else in the world is their claim. When they mm-hmm. fall, the last survivor, Dagobert, is the one that people will take of these bloodlines, will trace their bloodlines back to. So it's going to produce like uh, three main bloodlines that are, uh, that I was able to identify as part of the founders of the Knights Templar with the Dubouillon and De Payon and Anjou. And the Anjou will produce the Plantagenet. These are the three families that come out of the Lorraine region. And of course, you have the cross of Lorraine, which represents these two bloodlines with that double yeah. cross. It just, it, it to me, um, you know, I, I'm certainly not that politically oriented, but it does feel as though today, I, I don't think that it, it's, See, I don't understand if, if some of these people like the Rothschilds and, and, you know, some of the larger families that are out there that have been, you know, uh, the Windsors, who aren't really Windsor, but, you know, but but is there something in their consciousness that is driving them to a certain direction? I, because I don't believe that they are thinking about what bloodline they should, you know, marry into in order to create a stronger bloodline. I mean, is there... Is there something in the human condition that drives people one way or the other? You know, I, I, I'm not convinced of that, although many people believe that if you are of this sort of physical characteristics, you're going to be leaning this way or that way. Um, I'm not convinced uh-huh. of that. I still think there's free choice. But they've been inundated in, into the mysteries from childhood in these bloodlines. I mean, they are adept before they're 20 years old. Uh, they may not be able to take a full adept title till they reach a specific age, um, but the pure bloods are initiated from childhood, and so um, they they're brought up in this all the way through. And what they believe is that 
the watcher angels and the rebellious angels who they worship aren't evil. That mm-hmm. they are actually the good angels who are looking after humankind and want humans to be free of the oppressive God of the Bible. And so they view the God of the Bible and Christians and, and, and Jewish people as uh, being the evil ones. And so it's well, a complete inside-out, upside-down role reversal. Yeah, and, well, and you know, when you went into the you know, secret societies, the Freemasons, and then into the Templars, um, I understand that the lower levels probably don't understand anything that's going on. You have to get into the higher, way up echelon, but but that they were they were actually worshiping Lucifer uh, instead of God, and and yet yeah I know I know that that especially with the um, Freemasons, one of the things you have to acknowledge is that there's a higher power. Of course, that could be Lucifer too. Yes. Come to think of it. Um, yeah, all you have to do to be invited to the Freemasons is is they choose you, you don't choose them. So you have to be invited. Yeah. But the qualification after that, uh, and one presumes part of the qualification is new money or bloodline and pedigree. And uh-huh. that's been reaffirmed to me over and over and over from people who are, you know, are inside the craft. And so um, you have to believe in a God. And then at, when once you become adept, you understand who that real God is. And all these other names are just names for the same God, except for one, which is the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. And that's Adonai, wow. according to uh, the Freemasons. So, Well, the, the Templars that the dug at Temple Mount, um, originally the, the 11 Templars that... that supposedly discovered something um it was was it the genealogies that they discovered theoretically that was certain that was certainly part of what they were looking for because if you look back at history you understand that the Essenes were the first monastic order of the west they have monastic mm-hmm. orders in buddhism and that further east but they're the first sort of western monastic order and it's the Essenes that are in control of the temple at the time of the fall of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Romans in 70 CE. And so they believe that the Essenes, um, who are the ones who uh, you know, established the monastic orders in terms of the structure and stuff uh, as the uh, Augustines and the Benedictines and the Cistercians and the Calabrian monks and, and others are, are an extension of that polytheist belief system because the Essenes take themselves back to being the true religion of Heliopolis. And mm-hmm. so uh, I spend a fair bit of time in my book on, on the Essenes just to explain all of that for the people. And so they believe that they kept the bloodlines descending from David, which included Jesus, um, within their control and in control of the records within the temple and hid them somewhere. So they thought in part that that's what they were going to go after because the Templars were said to keep the secret. The secret is the bloodlines that this whole 
uh, order was formed for. And so they were keeping the secret of the bloodlines of Anjou and the bloodlines of Dubulian and the bloodlines of the Payon um, so that they could protect the Grail children um, that they like to call them for the end time so that they can produce, eventually produce an antichrist with all of these pedigrees between Nephilim and Jesus and Mary Magdalene and King David and King Saul. Apparently they say they have all of those scion bloodlines. So yes, they were looking for that as further verification for their families and also whatever else they could find for treasures and take back to Europe with them. Well, they certainly found something because they got very rich very fast. Oh, they and did. And so they took some knowledge and, and, and it gave them instant influence. Um, and, of course, they had the help of uh, St. Bernard, who is bloodline related to many of the original uh, royal bloodlines that were forming the Knights Templar. And he writes the letter for them in 1128 at the Council of Troy uh, that establishes the bull for their official uh, inception as an order within the Catholic Church, and then all of the the wealthy are donating money to that order, and they become fabulously powerful and rich uh, very quickly thereafter, and becoming the most powerful military order on the planet at that time. And that suggests that they did bring things back, things like building knowledge that goes way back in time and started the Gothic. Uh, renaissance of architecture that the churches were built and dedicated with some very interesting things. But that's because the Gnostics had mold into the, the Roman collegia um, so that they wouldn't be persecuted. And the collegia built all of the, all of the churches. So um, uh-huh. when the Templars came back, they reorganized those Mason guilds underneath them, gave them the the knowledge to build the, the Gothic architecture with the flying buttresses and everything else that went along with it. So we know they brought some things back with them. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm not so sure about, you know, everybody's searching for the Holy Grail and everything, and, and um, I'm just not sure that, that those, I, I'm not sure that the people that are searching for it understand what truly the Holy Grail is, to be honest with you, um, because they're looking for treasures and they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, which yep. probably has rotted away by now. Um, yep. And, you know, um, it, it just seems to me that, that as the human condition loves stories of mystery and, and magic and things like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Certainly the, the Bible holds all of that and more, um, yep. Yep. but it, it it just it it seems to me that so much of it is meant to take our attention away from the reality of what the purpose and, and the and the direction of humanity is supposed to be. Yeah, so, it's all designed to lead you away from God, right? To get you distracted yeah. and your focus off God. And again, you know, with, within the secret societies and Gnostic religions, I mean, the Holy Grail is not a chalice, and it's not the blood that was collected off the cross. The Holy Grail is, is a song royale or the Holy Bloodline yeah. um, that uh, contains these pedigrees we've been talking about. And the Holy Grail, most of the Holy Grail literature gets written 
and changed from its original nature in the time of the Templars because they're the ones that are funding and sponsoring the writing of this literature to embed their and encode their genealogies, their belief systems, and their history. And it has this superficial story that has a superficial Christian gloss on it. Um, but for the people within the craft and within the, the, the secret societies and Gnostic religions, they understand if they're an adept and, and the higher of adept level that you go, the more that you'd be able to understand what was being encoded into these stories, which is what they call the fairy tale concept. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, they talk about, you know, what was Solomon's treasure and it was the stuff that was looted from the temple and it was uh, the, the, the menorah from, from the temple and it was the Ark of the Covenant and Aaron's staff or, and, some manna and I mean and and then and then tons and tons oh and and don't forget the the copper scroll that had the location of all the treasures and everything and everybody's thinking money and stuff like that and, and yet the real treasure is probably uh scrolls that, that have the bloodline on it rather than all of this other superficial wealth which is for them cool yes too. And wow. additional knowledge. And their belief is, is that they brought back a lot of knowledge, technology, and, you know, the revolutionary Gothic style of architecture was an example of that extraordinary knowledge. And so, they're, yeah, they, and they were already fabulously rich. So to be a little bit richer wouldn't have made that much difference, right? No, probably not. But but you know when you're talking about the knowledge, is that the knowledge that were on the, that was on the two pillars that that were were created before the flood? Certainly, it's part of it. Um, I mean, a lot of that knowledge would have come down through mystery schools um, from the polytheist side. But there's also knowledge that Solomon had. There's also knowledge that Moses seemed to have had that they believe was also collected uh, in, in uh, Jerusalem and some building knowledge too, because, you know, Solomon went to tier for his knowledge in the uh, technology and the expertise to build the first temple. And the secret societies and the Gnostics believe that that's a, that's the knowledge from the Dionysian builders, which is this ancient knowledge that, would have gone back to um, the ancient times and knowledge that was found as they call that what they would say for, by Hermes, who finds the two pillars of Lamech after the flood, which has some of the knowledge on it. And, but more importantly, the location of the knowledge of 36,525 books that Enoch wrote, son of Cain, uh-huh. um, and was put into nine volts, stacked on top of each other below the pyramid, according to uh, Masonic uh, history. And Hermes finds this after the flood, and he takes that back to uh, Babel um, or to Nimrod, who are, and they're going to partner and build Babel City and Babel Tower. And the first thing that they do is apply this knowledge of the building to build the city and the tower. And that's why Nimrod in their history is the first grandmaster after the flood who writes the first 
constitution for for masonry in the masonic societies and this is the uh-huh. knowledge that goes to heliopolis that moses is educated in that he takes back with him to israel which ends up somehow in solomon's temple that's sort of the the loop that they they like to describe in their history it's 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 fascinating and you know it 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 makes sense and it's if you lay it out and you look at it as as a what what ten thousand twenty thousand thirty thousand year plan, it's quite amazing how generation after yeah. generation after generation just falls into place to create a scenario that we're that we're looking at now. Which um, yeah, and the the only way that you can be so transgenerational is is to have societies and tight knit families of control, not that they always get along because they don't, that keeps perpetuating this whole structure throughout time so that when they can eventually bring about the rendezvous with destiny, um, they will fully implement the rebellion, except that they're not in control of that time. Um, But they're always preparing to be ready for that showdown with God. Well, yeah, there's some guy in New York City that that has a placard for years and years and years that keeps saying the end is near. And, you know, I think he passes it down to his children and they to theirs. Um, Because almost every... (laughs) Have you seen him? (laughs) Yes, I have. That's why I'm I'm chuckling. (laughs) I mean, the warning is out there. And... And I, and I think for every generation, it's important to live your life accordingly. You know, if the end is is near, I had better do my best. You know, um, yes. and not and not wait for you know a whole bunch more incarnations. That you know, this is the important one because this is the one I am in now. But um, yep. it just it is it is phenomenal to see how how we are coming to to that time frame where supposedly um, the um, Antichrist is born. And, and it, I, I found it interesting because what you talked about end times, you know, you know because I live in the United States, I, I just figured, you know, this was going to be where the biggest, biggest boom was. And, and what, is, what in your book you suggest that, that the place that is going to be destroyed first, the place that is the biggest problem, is Rome. Yeah, and I, and I actually, it's my contention. I know everybody has a different view on it, or there's a number of different views that Babylon is is going to be located in in Rome. You know, what we do know is Babylon is a city, and it's a religion, and that it has control over the ten nation New Atlantean Empire of the end time. Uh, and without that religion, you don't have this ten-nation empire that's set up for Antichrist to come to power. What's interesting uh-huh. about Babylon is even with uh, the Essenes, they called that a Pesher code that comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the city of Rome. And this is, you know, um, a term that's used in the time of Jesus as well. And then when you look at Babylon in the New Testament, and you take that back to Greek, yes, it means the same as in Hebrew in terms of, you know, Babylon, the ancient city, and Babylon, the ancient um, uh, empire, and Babel, but it was also 
listed as an allegory for Rome. Mm-hmm. Because if you spoke against Rome at that time, you'd be put to death for treason because you weren't permitted to do that. So they would use a code for Rome. And it was a common code for Rome at the time of the writing of uh, Revelations. And so then I say, okay, that all makes sense. Now, what do the secret societies have to do with this? And we talked about the Knights Templar, but the Knights Templars, they get um, destroyed in 1307, disbanded, and you have Templars fleeing into the Knights of St. John and over to Scotland to form Freemasonry and into uh, Switzerland and all sorts of different places we don't have time to run down tonight. Mm-hmm. But they the secret societies and the Rosicrucians who are going to form after the cutting of the elm in 1188 at Geezer's castles and are going to leave the Templar order are going to be reforming as the Rosicrucians, this order that's known before as the Priory of Sion. And so the Rosicrucians are going to reestablish many orders after the fall of the Templar, so that they're not so centralized and one single swift attack can't do to them what happened at that time. So they're going to create Freemasonry. They're going to create um, the Royal Society. They are going to create the Illuminati. And one of the orders they're going to recreate within the church are the Jesuits. And the Jesuits are formed in about the 1500s. Um, and of course, um, it's you know, Ignatius of Loyola has a merry apparition, which is going to inspire him to this, but the order is going to interpret the Bible with the, by, by using the seven sacred sciences and the Greek philosophies. Um, and so the Jesuits are set up by the Rosicrucians to be the group that's going to control education, just as the Royal Society is set up in 1660 by the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons to control education outside of the church. The Jesuits are going to do that within the church. By 1570, they're going to have control of the banking. So now they have control of the banking with the Rothschilds that they also set up, the Rosicrucians, because they're the Bauer family before they get set up, um, outside the Roman church. And now they have control of the banking in, in about 1570 within the church. And the Jesuits, other main focus with this control that they're being granted by the Rosicrucians is to uh, use Rome to be the religion of Babel centered in Rome for the end time. Wow. And, you know, it just, just, you know, it's so, it, it is so obvious in many ways to see how this is happening. Why aren't many people paying attention to it? And what can they do to shift the focus well uh, the first thing is is people need to start asking critical questions as to to what's going on and the trouble though is that once you start peeling back this onion it, it the size and the scale of what we're talking about is so huge so yeah. old so battle hardy with so many tentacles everywhere it you, you it's hard to accept that there could be that size and scale of organization that is working directionally all in the same direction. Cause all of these groups that report up through the Rosicrucians and further up top in the West, they all have their own role and agenda and assignment. And 
when somebody looks at that, it's, it says that's just too much to accept. But once you start asking the hard questions and start digging below the surface and you keep digging, I mean, it becomes almost undeniable as you see all of it because you just, at some point in time, you just can't say there's that many coincidences in terms of everything that's going on and what they're trying to accomplish. And for the first time, we've got a Jesuit that is control uh, of the Roman church. And, uh, you know, the leader of the Jesuits is the black Pope. And one of the secret societies uh, predictions uh, for the last Pope before the end time is the black Pope. And the black Pope is the leader of the Jesuits. And that was made by Nostradamus, who was, you guessed it, a Rosicrucian. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> again, all of these things just aren't, aren't coincidental. But there's not much that we're going to be able to do to prevent them from doing what they're intending on doing because it's been ordained. Well, not, not only that, but it won't happen until it won't happen until the Holy Spirit is removed. Um, yeah. But we shouldn't just roll over either, right? We need to stand up and we need to educate uh, people, and in a way that doesn't turn them off to wanting to dig into this and or to convert to be a Christian. We need to do it in a way that if they're not ready today, as they see more, we've planted the right seeds and they're going to start asking those questions. And that's what our role ought to be is, is how do we save more people, but in a way Mm -hmm. that will permit them to be saved because the brainwashing is so extraordinary and it's been planned yeah. for so long and is so intense that they're pre- and they're preparing this generation to be deceived and the brainwashing is just going to get stronger well and, and you know it's brilliant i mean you know i it, it's evil but it's brilliant in that it appears that each of these entities are working um in and of themselves so if you destroy one that's okay the others will just keep going you know, there's no way to kill the head of this beast. It, it's yeah. It's, there's too many too many heads of the hydra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you cut off one, and two more will grow. And and yeah. so it, it's it's like a cancer. And yeah. um, it it, and it's it is diabolical. A, you know, That's the genius of it, right? So. Oh, it's brilliant. It's and and what. Thousands and thousands of years this has been going on, and at least at this point in time, um, there are those that actually recognize what's going on. You know, yeah. that's the cool thing. Yeah, and, and, and when you the, learn that, and when you learn that, you see these things that show up every once in a while, like you've got, you know, um, George Bush at uh, his father's funeral talking about a thousand points of light, and he used it in yeah. a couple other speeches, and of course his father made it famous. Uh-huh. That's said for a reason. A thousand points of light is this spark of the divine we were talking about earlier, and they want, and it's all used in association with creating the new world order to unite these thousand points of light, so that they can have that harmonic conversion in, in, into godhood. Or when you hear something like Prince Charles says that he's related to Vlad the Impaler. Right uh-huh. through his genealogies, which you know you're alluding that you know their name's not the Windsors. The original name is the Hanovers, with some other German families intermixed after the 
Um, yeah. King George comes over to uh, take the throne from Germany, and that's where the bloodline goes back to Vlad the Impaler, who Dracula is based on, and Dracula means son of a dragon, and the whole imagery of Vlad the Impaler and Dracula is is of a of a Nephilim, which was a blood drinking individual that you know was uh, rebelled against God, and uh, they're drinking blood for him to you know get their immortality back and to um, increase their cognizant uh, abilities. And they're the pale skin or the white skin because the Nephilim had pale skin color. This one uh-huh. is the red haired. Uh, hazel-eyed variety as opposed to the blue, blue-eyed and blonde hair of the Tuatha Danon in the north, north end of it, or the Scythian aspect, because Vlad takes his genealogies back to, the, to Scythia and his uh-huh. um, pedigree back to Scythia. And he's educated in the mystery school in Solomon, of Solomon in Austria. And so this is the individual that is going to be inducted into you got, you guessed it, Ordo Draconis, or the Sarkhan Iran, mm-hmm. that's organized to put the dragon kingships back on the European thrones uh, in around the 1400s, and, and done at the uh, coordination of the Rosicrucians who represent these bloodlines, and to continue the pursuits of thought, which is the development of the knowledge and education of the ancients, just as the Royal Society was commissioned to do who's created by the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians who both are the ones who control this ancient information today outside the church. Well, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, you do mention that, that there are rumors that the, the antichrist, you know, I mean, let, let's get down to two, what, what end times means for humanity um, it would be an antichrist. Well, you you tell me. And the the what 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 will happen according to the Bible um, the, with the antichrist and what happens then? Well, antichrist comes onto the scene at the beginning of the last seven years, but is not crowned as antichrist until the abomination at the midpoint of the last seven and a half years and that's where he's crowned as king of jerusalem title um in the temple and we talked earlier about the knights templar and their bloodlines antichrist is going to have a pedigree that incorporates all of these bloodlines if it's the western families that get their way and they believe they will and it seems to line up with uh, biblical prophecy a lot closer And so back in the time of Joshua, the Benjamites are awarded Jerusalem. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, one of the grafted in or scioned bloodlines of this bloodline of the Merovingians and the Anjou and the Bouillon, the Tepeyon and the 13 bloodlines of the West is that they have King Saul's bloodline in there as well. So in 1118, uh-huh. in a small priory on the Rock of Sion in Jerusalem, in 1118, Baldwin, the brother of Debulion, is crowned king of Jerusalem. 
And this is a title that they believe they inherited because of that bloodline. And this is the title that follows a lot of these bloodlines down through history, through the royal families. So the King of Jerusalem title would have been with the Habsburgs. Today it's with the Bourbon family, which is uh, the kings of Spain, both uh, um, the current king and his father uh, held the title. This is the title that Antichrist, um, they believe, will claim in Jerusalem when he's crowned king of the world. Um, so Antichrist is going to be the dragon messiah. He's going to be the false messiah. So you have two halves of the last seven years. And so to bring about the end time, there's three major things that need to happen other than the technology and the knowledge has to be as great as it was that brought the apocalypse before the flood, where the seven sciences matched up with the angelic knowledge or the knowledge of the gods to actually rebel against God, which brought about the flood. They need to have that happen today, but we're getting close to that. That's why we're having such an acceleration of knowledge right now. But also, you have to have an ability to have a world government and a universal religion, and the Jewish people will have to be able to do the sacrifice for the first three and a half years on a wing of the temple, or as it says in King James Version Bible, an extremity of the temple, and you take that back to Hebrew, and that means wing or on the outer edge of, of the temple. And so all of this needs to, to take place, and it's going to be Antichrist who is going to be the one that negotiates for this rising universal religion, probably because of disasters, catastrophes, and wars, to come together under this universal religion and uh, form this world government that's made up of ten kings or empires. And as the secret societies, and in this case, the Club of Rome, which is why they were created in the late 60s to, to do, and they report, of course, directly to the Rosicrucians. Uh-huh. They've divided the world up into 10 blocks of nations, 10 empires, 10 spheres of influence, 10 trading blocks, however you want to call them. And this is the new Atlantis, just as the Poseidon Empire had 10. That's what they're trying to create, just as there was, there's 10 predicted as 10 kings, 10 toes, 10 horns, and Daniel in Revelation. And so that's what they're trying to bring about. And so it's going to be Antichrist who actually puts this deal together for for Babel. And that starts his rise to power. And at that point in time, you're going to have a complete rebellion when he's king and people are asked to take the mark to stand up and fight against the God of the Bible if you want your freedom. And they're going to place themselves as the good ones, the ones who are the children of light, the ones who want to free humankind from the oppressive Adonai of the Bible, as they like to call them. And this matches up, of course, very well that, you know, as it says in the Bible, that Satan masquerades or disguises himself as an angel of light, just as his ministers do, just as his followers do. So um, people are going to think that they're, they're on the right side, but that's inside out upside down thing that i've been referring to throughout the show Uh and this is going to have a ramp up of wars and destruction all the way through so by the time antichrist takes power you have had the sealed judgments and you have you've had the the trumpets and that's 25 percent of 
of things being destroyed with the seals and then 33%. And then after the bold judgments comes Armageddon in almost complete destruction unless God were to step in, which he does, and defeats uh, Antichrist at, at Armageddon. But it is a time where Christians or people who are still here, depending on when you believe rapture is going to happen, it's going to be a horrific time. It's going to be wars, there's going to be disasters, disease, famine, slavery, persecution. You know, a time that has never been seen in the last three and a half years ever before is what it's described. So it is a uh, all-out, all-in gambit by these bloodlines and secret societies and religions that are still working as an organizational structure today to make one big push to gain a realm of their own, just as Lucifer is described in the King James Bible in Isaiah 14, of wanting to have a realm of their own. That's what they're trying to win. That's the end game. Well, isn't that what Hitler tried to do? It's exactly what he tried to do. And, of course, that's why he would be the second Antichrist figure of Nostradamus, right? Oh, okay. Okay. So And Napoleon was, was the first Antichrist figure and the true Antichrist is the next one to come. So end times does that mean an end to humanity or does that mean a new beginning? Because isn't it a thousand years of peace that we're supposed to have after this? Yeah, it's it's something that we have to go through so that the mystery of God can be fulfilled and that the full number of the Gentiles will be fulfilled at that point in time and when jesus comes back the world isn't totally destroyed although if it would be kept on going it would be and from that point on now we start the future time first with the thousand years there where we get a reign of jesus and a repopulation of the earth and how things could be in direct contrast to the previous six thousand years Uh And at the end of that thousand years, you have the second Magog War, because the first one is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, which is clearly, as it says in 38, um, that it's in the latter times or the end time. And in 39, you have the second Exodus. So without getting into too much minutia, that's the end time that we see on the horizon today. And then you have the Magog War, which is, again, where Satan is now released because he has put in the abyss for a thousand years at Armageddon, but is released after a thousand years. And he does what he always does. He stirs up war, just as Azazel and the angels taught war to humankind and Nephilim uh, before the flood. That's what they do. And so that rebellion is put down and then we go into the true future time when you have a new heavens and a new earth at, at the end of that. And there's the judgment and we move on into whatever that future is going to be. So it's, yeah, it's the start. The end time is the start of the birth of the, the new future time. And that's why you have birth pangs that are going into this. That's this painful, um, birthing of this new world that we have to go through because, what, has, what must take place will take place, so all the words of God will be fulfilled. Well, in order for this to happen, doesn't, it, doesn't a temple have to be built on Temple Mount again? 
Not necessarily, um, because, again, if you look at what Daniel says, um, it's on an extremity or a wing of the temple. Now, is that the existing mosque, right, Um, Mm -hmm. that is permitted that it's allowed to do there under this umbrella religion that's going to be in place for the first three and a half years um, that permits that? So Islam will be, you know, also part of the universal religion and reporting to uh, this um, polytheist religion, which is one of the reasons why Islam can't be the end time religion is because under no circumstances would they permit the Jewish people to, to do the <laughs> sacrifice on a wing of the temple or anywhere in the world. They'll wipe them from the face of the earth, given the opportunity. Um, at least the ones in control would anyways. And yeah. so... Um, and the other option is, is you may be right on that, but it does take time to build the temple. And if you look at what Josephus says in terms of his descriptions, uh, when he lived, when uh, the Herod temple was in place, the second temple, um, that would be a little bit, uh, a few hundred yards away and closer sort of the edge as you get, as you go down into the valley based on what his descriptions are. So the mosque may yeah. not be where the Holy of Holies was, and you could build one there, and it could be, um, you know, it could be maybe an extension of the existing mosque or an extension of the new temple that they're going to build. But you wouldn't think, though, that they would be doing a sacrifice in a new temple on the extremity of the temple. You would think that it would be right in the Holy of Holies or just outside the Holy of Holies like it was in the past. But when we're dealing with this new religion that's going to umbrella all the religions you know i'm not sure how that matches up with what would have the jewish people would have wanted and antichrist needs to be accepted by these jewish people even if for a short period of time and with that being the case he's going to have to show some sort of jewish pedigree otherwise they're not going to accept him and so it's the world government and it's the it's the it's the sacrifice and the world religion are the three big things that are going to have to happen. And that's going to take catastrophes and predictions and false signs and a whole bunch of things to make that happen. And then to totally fool the people, you need to have that ramped up completely for them to accept antichrist, including a fake Armageddon. Yeah. That's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, because, you know, when you get down to it, most of our religions, almost all of them, are based on the golden rule. So I can see how there would be, um, there, there would be a foundation to blend into a world religion. Well, and they're working on that right now. The interfaith um, organizations, they meet at least once or twice a year. And they haven't got the evangelical Christians on board, but they've got pretty much every other Christian denomination on board. And they've got all the other religions with representatives there, and they meet to work out compromises Uh in doctrine for a religion that could be accepted by everybody in the world. And you've got the Pope who is leading this charge. And chairs some of the more um, important meetings that are going on. You know, there's a picture that I have of uh, Pope Francis, I think it was in 2016. It was an interfaith 
uh, conference on deities, and they had this big seraphim plume serpent in in the main lobby of the Vatican with a picture of Francis and and a few other people there. And this is Kokakon, which is the plume war serpent of the Kishamaya, which would be an equivalent to Azazel out of the Book of Enoch. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. You know, they've got these gods being accepted into the Vatican by a Jesuit uh, pope. It's absolutely extraordinary how far this movement is coming. And and uh, I know they're still going to struggle for a bit, but this is the building block of this universal religion, and it seems like it's going to be centered in Rome. Now, you, you just mentioned Azazel. Was he thrown into the pit, or is he still loose? Well, there's two two schools of thought as to where he is. One is um, in the abyss, which I think he is. Yeah. And then you've got in the occult version that he's hung in Orion. Now, with uh, that yeah, version, that. that puts the abyss in Orion. And that's why you have um, him shown uh, as being hung with a pentagram star. You know, star for Orion, star for uh, a, a god or an angel. Um, so maybe the abyss is located out there, or maybe that's just their version as to where he is. But I think he's in the uh, in the abyss, and I think his a, name a, in the abyss is. Go ahead. No, is isn't a there a representative and Apollyon? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because isn't there a, a, a representation of carving at Roslyn Temple, uh, at Roslyn? Yes. The church there yes. was and him upside down? And he, he's upside down, and yeah. he has uh, the pearls of wisdom, which is an allegory for the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And he, there's two ropes that are leading away in the form of an upside-down Z, two Zs of Azazel. And uh, that is the one that um, secret societies and the Gnostics most accredit uh, with giving the illicit knowledge from heaven to the ancients that exhilarated their knowledge. He's the one who taught the ancients the art of war, how to make weapons, um, and brought uh, war to an art or a science or a discipline in the ancient world. And this is why Abaddon Apollyon being released in uh, Revelation 9 is so important because that's the war that is the fake Armageddon where you have 200 million man army in Revelation 9. And you have the same types of descriptions of this war in Joel 1 and 2 as opposed to Joel 3 and 4, which is the Armageddon War. And this is the Gog War that I referenced earlier that is Antichrist is going to use as the fake Armageddon and say that he won as part of his pedigree to make people believe that he's Antichrist, who's, he's the true Christ, and is coming to bring peace on the earth. And Azazel is mentioned in the Bible as the scapegoat in some translations, and if you take that back to Hebrew, uh, and now I'm referring scapegoat in the King James Version Bible, that goes back to actually Azazel. And uh, Azazel is the root word, goes back to several words that all mean the same type of thing. It's A-Z-A, uh, Azaz, 
but it all means might and forces and war. And the God that Antichrist is going to honor in Daniel is the God of forces. And that word goes back to uh, Maus uh, in, uh, if I pronounce that right, in Hebrew, that goes back to this connection of, is rooted in this connections of the uh, AZ and AZAZ Hebrew words, which Azazel is rooted in. And so I think this God that Antichrist is going to honor that helps him rise to power is the God of forces, Azazel, who is Abaddon and or Apollyon, which is the destroyer, just as Azazel was the destroyer of the antediluvian world. And what's important to understand about that is that Antichrist is also called the son of perdition. And perdition goes back to a series of words that is rooted in um, Apollia and Apollyon, and even Apollo is rooted in, in those Greek words, but they're not saying, this is not saying that he's the son of Apollo. He's the son of Apollyon, the son of perdition. And what's important to understand about that is, is that um, Azazel is Abaddon, just, and as Apollyon is Abaddon, they both mean destroyer. And we have Antichrist being connected, as you take that back to Greek in the same collection of words as as uh, apollyon and abaddon Mm -hmm. is destroyer when you look at jeremiah uh jeremiah 50 and it's the word destroyer is being used and that goes back to the word abad which is rooted in abaddon which also means destroyer and of course it's antichrist in who destroys babylon at the midpoint of the last seven years in revelation just as Jeremiah 50 is describing the destruction of end-time Babylon. And I think he's getting all his help from Azazel, who is coming out of the abyss. Well, it seems to me that if wisdom is given to you, it's not as good a thing as if you earn it yourself. So that to take something that seems to be fabulous before you've earned it, is it, I, I, to me, that's the message. It's, it's sort of like, you're going to give me all this, woohoo, I'm going to go out and make a fortune instead of I've worked very hard to accumulate this knowledge, and because I've worked for this knowledge, I can put it to a better use. Yeah, two, two different ways of uh, using things. Um, just yeah. as you have two different views on leadership, you have the shepherd leadership or the servant leadership, and then uh-huh. you have sort of the hunter-warrior um, leadership. And one is, is about sustaining people and helping people and helping the flock. And the other one is about taking and gratifying yourself. So that's the two philosophies yeah. that we're talking about. And, you know, while, while being handed something is really cool, I have learned in my life that if something is handed to me and I haven't earned it, chances are I'm going to lose it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. thanks very much. I'll work for it. <laughs> I, I agree with that 100%. I mean, you need to, you need to earn everything that you, that you have. It's nice to be helped and get some gifts, but 
it's what you really have done the blood, sweat, and tears on is what you appreciate more and value more. So, and then, it, and then it's just as importantly is what do you do with that afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely, and and you know the the knowledge that you gather is wonderful so long as you can put it to use and share it. Yes. And you know my my theory is you can't teach something unless you've experienced it and. Yeah, I think that's another thing that, that people will people will know if you validity have validly um, earned something to be able to share it, as opposed to I read this and now I'm going to pass it off as my own. So, you know, it's and but you, the story you tell and the work you've done, I, I I know I told Mark a number of times, your book appears to be a PhD thesis. I mean, it is well. Thank so you well for done. that. Um, and, and I'm in education, and, and I, I, you know. <laughs> well, I appreciate so, that. Yeah. I, I get a lot of people telling me that they keep it on their shelf as a reference book, and they've got everything highlighted and marked. And anytime they kind of get a question or on something, or and they sort of go pull it out, and they're able to find <laughs> it and, and dig that information out. And that's <laughs> that. That's so warming to me because. You know, as as you said, you know, why would I want to do all of this research and then not share it and try oh, and make gosh, sense yeah. of it to people? Yeah, and, and I want to no throw I, I want to throw in there. You have also covered in your book, and we're right down to the line here. All also, you've covered fairies and gnomes and elves and yeah and yeah. the greys and UFOs. So you know, you do cover a full spectrum of stuff. Um, I was delighted when I hit those areas, and had we had another two hours, we would have gone into those. But you know, I'm it's a, it's to a show in itself. Believe me, <laughs> it is, it, and, and yeah. I'm going to want to talk to you about doing that because I think is if the Bible does cover these aspects, and it covers elementals, and it covers so many things that we didn't get a chance to touch on. But yeah. I want to send yes. everybody to Genesis Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com which is your website, and your book is um, on my website with a link directly to Amazon, or you can go directly to Amazon, or probably they can go to your website to get your book. It is it is mm-hmm. definitely worth putting the effort and the time into reading it. I'm going to, I hate to say this, but I'm going to have to go back and reread it again because, you know, when you only have a week to get through that many pages, you, you don't get the, the nuances. But I want to no, thank you and, and, so much. Well, thank you, know, you. I, I and, and I would suggest to most people, do not try and speed read my book. There's so much information in there. <laughs> no, so. You'll get lost in the begatting. <laughs> but, but, but it is, it, it is an amazing book, and, and it's well done. And if you, if you take, you know, if you take a section of it and you do it in a week's time and you really pay attention to it and think about what is being said, um, there, there's treasure here for sure. And I want to thank you so much for being with me tonight. I so appreciate it. And, and, and I would like to have you back sometime. Oh, I would love to come back. I love to do shows with people who are well-versed in these things so that we can dig deep into to aspects that, you know, um, doesn't happen often enough because, again, I think there's so much information that people need to need to hear so I'd, I'd come back anytime oh well you know i have that recorded here um 
So we have to go. <laughs> We're out of time. But um, I'll hold you to that one. And, and I want to thank everybody for being here tonight and listening. And, and I hope you re-listen to this show over and over again because there's so much information here. He has been so phenomenal. And um, I, we will be back again. Gary, good night. <laughs> good night. Thank you. Thank you.